Deadwood Soundwell. Hey, Biggs here. If you'd like to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash network. We've got a brand new episode up there, which we have a bracket of athlete actors to figure out which one is the best. We've got a character lab for Back to the Future, which is where we swap out Marty McFly and replace him with other franchise characters and do a mental experiment to see where they wind up in the movie franchise. And then we've got a segment where we figure out what Nintendo game it is based off of the boss that's in it. So brand new episode right now. There's two episodes on Patreon that are exclusive to Patreon for Not Safe for Network. And then we've got four other episodes that you can only find there that are episodes we've recorded in the past and other podcasts that somewhat relate to what we're talking about lately. The other thing I wanted to let you guys know, the show is going to start being released on Wednesdays. So start looking for us on Wednesdays after this week. Thank you. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Not safe for network. Welcome to Not Safe for Network. I'm Biggs. I'm Brandon. And I'm Carl. So Louis C.K. has a film coming out apparently around the 4th of July. It's going to be opening in three movie theaters in New York, Chicago, and Boston. Uh, I don't know what this is about. Apparently, it was kept under wraps. He is encouraging his fans to tell movie theaters to try and get the film. It has not been picked up by any of the major chains. So they're opening small and hoping for a wider release. So that's cool. We got Louis C.K. back, right? I know you guys are excited. Yay. Fuck Louis C.K. Why are we talking about this? (laughs) Well, we're talking about this because it's part of a bigger trend. So Me Too was what, 2016? Is that right? About, yeah. Okay, so we're like six years in this last month. We had Kevin Spacey had not one but two films that were released in the cans that he was in. And then we also had Roman Polanski and James Franco making movies that hit cans. So I apparently we're in the phase now where it's like, okay, we let people suffer for a little while so they can come back. Like, what are your guys' feelings on that one? I'm not surprised. It seems to be happening overseas, which is a little different from them returning to Hollywood and being welcomed with open arms. You're right. You're right. It is not necessarily a Hollywood thing right now. They found the prestige they were craving on a different stage, basically. They just moved, which is what they do, right? They eventually burn out the stage they're on and move to a different stage. Preachers do it. <laughs> Actors do it. Politicians do it. Cops do it. I mean, you're welcome to do it, but I'm not going to be funding this. So when Kevin Spacey announced those movies, he was indicted on four charges in the UK. Probably not a coincidence that they indicted him right then. I'm guessing they probably had something they were working on and then they were probably like, he's in the spotlight. Let's fucking nail him. You know, it's a bummer that like we're right back where we started. It kind of feels like. Yep. Well, you know, in 1991, didn't Liza Minnelli sing a song about how we did it? We beat misogyny. Did she? I'm pretty sure. I don't know. There was like this whole song. Hillary Clinton will save the day. In 91? Maybe she wasn't was even in the White House yet. This was like the rise of women in politics. It might have been a little bit later than that. You know that Hillary Clinton had plans to go to the White House herself yeah. since she was a child. 
Yeah, I've heard that. And she's never made that a secret. What I'm thinking of happened in the wake of Anita Hill. Yeah, I would have been around that. Yeah. yeah, like 90, 91, somewhere around there. It's kind of a cycle. Two steps forward, three steps back. Netflix dropped a Sandman trailer. I'm going to be honest, dude. I don't know what I saw. So I was kind of hoping you would take the lead on this one, Carl, because this feels like your lane. Normally it would be. I was a huge fan of the Sandman comics. I read them all multiple times. First, I checked them all out from the library. Then I bought them one by one. It's one of Neil Gaiman's better works. Yeah, definitely. I know I've read some of the, the graphic novels, and I couldn't tell you which ones they were. but Looks like the comics. Looks beautiful. Yeah, um, and I think they gave it enough budget to work. He has human eyes, which is weird. Who's he? Dream. So the endless, they're like seven avatars of existence, basically. They're somewhat arbitrarily picked as to what are like at the top, because there's like death. And they all have D names. So seven endless, right? Destiny, desire, dream, death, despair. And then there's delirium, but she used to be delight. And at some point, something happened and she switched from delight to delirium there also used to be another member of the endless and he was destruction but where the story picks up like where it starts he has voluntarily just like vacated his position as an avatar of this concept they're just like these massive concepts that are personified where it starts out it's a very like comic book type story where Sorcerers that are like of the uh, Aleister Crowley-esque variety, those kind of wizards have managed to cast a spell attempting to imprison death so that they could live forever. But instead, they imprison Dream right. by mistake. So he stays trapped in their little prison for like... 60 years, something like it that. Was thir- it was like at least 30, 30 years. years. Yeah, at least 30 years. He's like, this ain't going to end well for you guys. And they're just like, well, fuck. If we just let you go now, then we're fucked. And he's just like, well, if you <laughs> eventually I'll get out. So you're fucked no matter what. And so then eventually the seal kind of cracks and he escapes and returns home to his realm. And it's all fucked up because he's been gone for a bunch of time. Well, so, that and people in the material plane couldn't dream during this entire time. Like, yeah, there's sleep, all so sorts like of side effects of his absence has yeah. caused all sorts of turmoil. He put his power into objects and he needs that power back. So he has to go find the objects so that he can absorb his power back, basically. Once it reaches that point, the nature of the story itself dramatically shifts. You're constantly like having these little side stories and those side stories connected to the main story, but they're like little dreams people are having, you know, or like there'll be a cat dream is like one little story that's like really memorable. The first volume is basically what I described. Right. The second volume involves this house and all of these people in the house. There's metaphysical things going on where nightmares and dreams that have escaped the dreamland are causing havoc it just kind of sticks with these other people and goes through their little story in the, a lot of the sam and comics dream is like not even a central character is this series of stories i mean is it kind of an anthology thing or is it one solid story or it's one solid story with 
anthologies kind of woven in. <laughs> okay, so it's both. It's a lot of things. There are characters that live in the dreamland that have existed there f- for a long time and other characters that have sort of emigrated there and don't originate from there, but have like moved to there and inhabited a role there. So like there is a crow named Daniel who is kind of the audience surrogate in the comics. And he is the soul of a kid that committed suicide. And you get the feeling that he's not the first one to take on that, that role may not even be the only one at that time, but he's the one that we follow. There's two characters, respectively, the Lord of Secrets and the Lord of Mysteries, and it's Abel and Cain. And so, like, what came first, you know, stories about Abel and Cain or the actual Abel and Cain? God and the devil and all the gods actually exist in their own separate corresponding places, and belief in them is what gives them life in this world of abstract things. One of the best volumes of Sandman of all time is one where Lucifer gives up the key to hell and gives it to Dream and is like, you do something with with hell after he's kicked everybody out and it's just empty real estate. But then uh, emissaries from all these different realms start visiting him to petition, give us hell. We'll do something good with it, right? The world of order. And it's just like, a Buddha that holds a box and the box ha- contains messages, you know, and that's like the, can the ab, the abstraction of order personified. And then like Loki's there and Odin's there. And there's a Japanese thunder God that shows up all of these different gods from every pantheon. They all exist because they're all stories. So it's like dream is above them all because stories are dreams. I'm really looking forward to it. This is the part of Neil Gaiman's writings that I really, really enjoy. I only read the first volume of Sandman, but I read parts of American Gods and watched the entire series of that. But I just like the philosophy and the stuff that he tends to write about. And I think this is going to work way better as a series than a, than a movie. Yeah, it would have been a terrible movie. Yeah, they were trying to adapt that for a long, long time. I'm, I think yeah, since some point Gordon in the 90s, Levitt. right? Joseph Gordon-Levitt was involved for a period. Kevin when it Smith was, in... was involved for a while. I think in the production, I don't think he was yeah, ever going to direct. Not direct. <laughs> it was because he was the comic book guy in Hollywood, right? <laughs> right. That makes sense. Yeah. I had the thought of Adam Sandler and him being called the Sandman sometimes. And if he had done a Sandman comic, like... I'm looking for delirio. Yeah. <laughs> I'll invade your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> you Do know. have yourself a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Just trying to hit every pitch of Adam Sandler. <laughs> you know, to be honest, uh, I don't think I would want an entire movie of that, but I wouldn't mind like a funnier die sketch. Just like an SNL sketch, an SNL sketch length of Sandman being Sandman. Like, Oh God, they need to do a Sandman on SNL. That's like no brainer. That sounds like a Will Forte sketch that would have been cut. It's just like, nobody's going to follow this. Well, now (laughs) Sandman is like one of those ones, dude. It's one of those comics that even if you haven't heard of a comics, you've heard of it, you know? You're probably right Neil for our Gaiman age. I guess, I guess for our age, you're right. Was like something that we discovered when we were like teenagers. 
And now we all have kids and we're giving them to our kids. So they're growing up on it. So he's a household name at this point. Neil Gaiman's a household. Name. I would say he's a household name because he's like traded into like movies and TV at this point. He's been doing that for a while. And, but yeah. Stardust, comic book readers, he's dude, been Stardust a, he's been a household name for a long time. But that's I, not everybody. I honestly you know? think that Stardust was the closest anybody ever got a spiritual successor to the Princess Bride. Even though it's not a universally beloved movie, the people that love it, like, really love it, right? I'm one of those people, yeah. there are people that would argue that it's as close to a perfect movie as any movie could get. Yeah, if I was to do a knock against it, I would say that with the exception of the storybook story song, I would not object at all if Rob Reiner was like, let's go back in and get a real orchestra to like orchestrate this. I would be just fine with that because it's a lot of like synthesizer. Dun, I was dun. about to say they should get John Carpenter to do this. Dude, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but that's synthesizer I'm in. though. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? But it would be it, better synthesizer. Uh, <laughs> I just like, I, I like the idea of they're going through like the swamp and it's like, or it's like walking bass. Doom doom. Your love is like a storybook story. Doom doom. I forgot about that like terrible, like glammy, rocky ballad. Yeah, that song's perfect for that movie, though. It is. It is. So, and it's an end credit song. So, who cares? Neil Gaiman. He has his own voice, but he's also come pretty goddamn close to writing like Douglas Adams. I don't think anybody's ever come closer to sort of aping Douglas Adams. Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett combined did a real solid job with Good Omens. Yeah, they did. Like Good Omens is like almost to Douglas. Oh, it's so close, you know, and it's good for what it is. It's its own thing and it's great. But man, Douglas Adams is one of those guys. It's a question of like taste. It's not like quality. He had this palette that was just so unique that you just can't mimic it without it looking like a bad mimicry. I tried to rewatch the Hitchhiker's movie, the Linklater one. The On, Linklater one. Is that? Linklater did a movie is that Was that in like the mid 2000s yeah is that the one with early 2000 so on paper hated it that's the hated thing it. but on paper it is so fucking good richard link later directing that guy's pretty solid track record yeah. for movies well yes you've got and then the he's cast, got some bad ones too. the cast is like <laughs> martin freeman right yep. zoe deschanel sam rockwell most deaf alan rickman john malkovich like it's fucking amazing cast and then they just fucking don't get it. Like they, the tone is all wrong. They shoehorn in a romance between Arthur and Trillian, which is ultimately it is the death blow to this movie is putting a romantic connection between those two, because it's not just like a, will they won't they thing in the books. It's a, they won't like, that's not a factor in the books at all. And making it a thing sabotages the soul of that link later can do a lot of things as a director making franchise films it's just not his thing you can have the before movies but it doesn't really feel like a franchise either you know what i mean the before sunrise before sunset before twilight it was kind of a happy accident that the second one happened it just like a decade passed and they were like Hey, what do you think about doing this again? And then talking about their obsessed with that concept, didn't he? Like he's always been obsessed with time. Like you start to think about it. So unless a studio hands him something, which I think the two examples of a studio handing him something that I can think of are School of Rock 
Hitchhikers. Hitchhikers, right? But then you look at his other movies, it's like slacker. It's all done to look like it's in one day, right? Like one unbroken shot. You start in the early evening, it goes like into nighttime. You're talking like boyhood where he's filming right. it over Ten that years. long time. The before trilogy, they're letting actual time pass. Right. Even Days and Confused is like a thing he came up with, which was like reckoning with his friend group and like the people he knew in high school like it is him in a sense going back in time to like think about what right. his experiences was and that's all one day yeah and it's all in one day like link later he's an tour director and his thing is time it's weird because like he totally pulls off school of rock but it's not really a time thing he was the executor he actually followed through and did it yeah but oh, yeah. the guy who came up with the idea that became boyhood Lars von Trier. I did not know that. Yeah. Lars von Trier started a film school of thought called Dogma 95. He wrote it in 1995. And it was written on bar napkins because he was drunk with some bar director friends of his. And they were angrily like one of those like, this is the state of affairs in movies today and it's all bullshit. And this is how we're going to have a revolution. And they came up with all these rules. And like one of the rules that they had was no adding sound in post. If you want a sound effect, you have to make it live. You know, that kind of shit. And you can see Lars von Trier trying to follow his own rules in his own movies and failing miserably because like. It's uh, a hard thing to do. Because what he, because it's it's so strict, it's impossible basically. But one of the things that's good about establishing rules is that then you can break those rules. So like Dancer in the Dark was his most successful film following the Dogma 95 structure because he does all that stuff except for when Bjork daydreams and her daydreams turn into musicals. When she's singing songs, it's full theater, theatrical effect, bright colors, and everything's choreographed and everyone's beautiful and the lighting is perfect and the sound is perfect. And when she's not daydreaming, when she's in the real world, he's filming it with his rule structure. But he uh, also conceptualized this film where he's going to film three minutes of footage a year for 30 years and have a 90 minute film. And he was like, you know, actors will be dead by the time the 30 years is up and trying to write in contingencies for the whole thing. I think what happened was 30 years is too long. Yeah, it's a long time. But 10 years, or maybe Boyhood was even eight years? Eight years? Boyhood was 13 13 years, years. which is fucking impressive. Still less than half of what... Yeah, but But still impressive. And and like... Obviously manageable because he did it. The, like the segments for that movie are not like you have 15 minutes for this or whatever. It's not like some segments are longer than other segments. Right. Because at the end of the day, I think he was going through with everybody and being like, what's your experience this year? What are you going through with like Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette and whoever the kid was? The really good stuff he kept in and the bad stuff he mostly laced out. It's a it's a pretty long movie, but it's one of those ones like when you watch it once, it's impressive once, but you're like. Like, I'm never going to watch this again. Right. <laughs> well, I remember when my dad first told me about the Lars von Trier project is called Dimensions. And we used to speculate, how is he getting three minutes of footage from each year? Is he filming throughout the year and then editing it down to three minutes? Or is he just like getting three minutes of raw footage at one spot in the year? With Lars von Trier, it could really be either. It could be. And like the final product was going to be chaos. As most of his movies Link are. Linklater <laughs> is much more of like 
straight laced. I know what you mean compared to Lars von Trier, but that's not a director people would necessarily describe well, as straight laced. I think he's a fairly straight laced person. He's just very conceptual. You know, he comes up with these concepts, but then he approaches it from a very, you know, he knows, he knows how to get stuff done. That's the thing with Linklater is like, he's done so many different things, but he knows how to get it done at the end. He can come up with this wild idea, but he can deliver that idea. And that's what makes him so fucking rare as an auteur is like, there's so many auteurs that are just like, they have the movie. That's their biggest dream that they'll never get to make because of whatever reason. Right. And he like he got into the ro- his rotoscoping phase. Oh yeah, Waking like, Life. And Scanner Darkly. Yeah. I think Scanner Darkly was probably the closest that anyone's ever come to adapting Philip K. Dick accurately. So that's points for Link later. But he couldn't hit Douglas Adams. But fuck. I read a uh, a book about Douglas Adams, the guide to the Hitchhiker's Guide. It was like a the Hitchhiker's Companion, I've actually seen this book before. Written by Neil Gaiman. And it's fantastic. I didn't know Neil Gaiman wrote it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've just seen it. I've seen the cover. Like, he was a fan. And he also, like, Douglas Adams wrote for The Fourth Doctor, for Doctor Who. And those are some of my favorite storylines. And he wrote for the worst season of Monty Python, <laughs> and, Flying Circus. And Neil Gaiman also wrote for Doctor Who. And they're, like, my favorite episodes of the new Doctor Who. And the closer connected Neil Gaiman is to a project that is attached to him, I think the better it is. I think he was pretty closely aligned with uh, with Stardust, and I think that's one reason why it worked so good. That and, like, again, phenomenal fucking cast. Uh, the main character was nobody at the time, but he went on to be Daredevil, Charlie Cox. Oh, was it? Yeah. Honest to God, I saw Stardust when it first came out on DVD, and I've not and seen it since. The- like okay so get this and i only i'll be honest man i've been quiet because like i saw it but i didn't really see if it because use, i was at a party and i wasn't parallel, totally paying attention you know like people yeah. use parallel casting to like tell the plot of a movie you'll say like this new uh thor movie has him fighting batman right because it's christian bale right so with this one you could say that daredevil and superman are vying for love of the same woman oh janet pam <laughs> Wait, was it Michelle Pfeiffer? I'm trying to remember. No, Michelle Pfeiffer is an evil witch that wants to steal the heart of the star, who is Kate Blanchett. So the wasp wants to steal the heart of the star. Yeah, the wasps, (laughs) the original wasp, OG wasp. And Robert De Niro is a pirate captain and like... Yeah, I remember. De Niro, I remember. It's got another fantastic cast. That one's not aged super well. Mark Strong kicks friggin' ass in that movie as like... Because like then there's the whole concept of like the seven brothers that are all trying to become king and they all are trying to kill each other to become king because that's how it works in this family. But when you die, you don't get to go on. You have to like hang out and be a ghost in look like you did when you died until the next king gets chosen. So there's like four ghosts when the story starts and there's like two more die right away. So then there's six ghosts and all just sitting there waiting, like hurry up and like somebody get crowned king so we can get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Sandman's going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) way to close that off dude (laughs) well let's talk about stranger things how into it did you get brandon did you get time to plow through them i watched all of part one of season four yeah i accidentally saw them mostly twice because amanda and i watched them right away to be ready for last week and then you couldn't make it so we held this off and then my daughter proceeded to go and watch all of them while amanda and 
my mom and me were in the living room having all seen it before, just like being nice and letting her watch it. I don't like how they split up the season. Let me just start there. This sucks. This is clearly just a Netflix plan to either get Emmys or to keep subscribers on for an extra two months, right? Because I think it's July that they dropped the Sounds last like, two. Yeah. But that's fucking crazy dude like if you're gonna split it in two which i already don't like if it's a nine episode season at least give me like five and four or four and five don't give me fucking seven and two each episode is like two plus hours so what I (laughs) (laughs) don't give me seven and two (laughs) (laughs) no i understand for those that aren't aware, it's going to be two long-ass episodes. I will say that makes it a little more forgivable, but it's still not forgivable. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so what we got, what did you think, Brandon? Did you enjoy this season? I enjoyed most of this season. So I'm going to guess the Hopper stuff you did not enjoy. I God, that stuff was so hard to get through. Yeah. I hated it until we finally got a Demi-Gorgon in that. And then I was like, okay, I can tolerate this now. Like, it wasn't the best, but it was like, at least it's Stranger Things now. You know what I mean? but it was like, God, the whole thing was just felt so shoehorned. And I still don't see, like, what it brings to the story. I can tell you what they were thinking, but in terms of what it brings to the story, it's nothing. Yeah. Like, it's a big donut. What they were thinking was when they ended season three, they were like, let's have the Russians get him because we lightly touched on a Cold War plot. Like, America versus the Soviet Union. Big staple of, like, 80s genre, right? Right. So, like, that's what they're thinking. But then I think they were like, oh, fuck, now we got to write something. What do we fucking do? So you have two characters go all the way across who should not be able to get to Russia in the first place. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, right away, that rings untrue. And that one (laughs) comedian, and I don't know his name, but he's in a million things now. Nobody likes him or knows his name, but, like, he's in a million things. In Stranger Things, he plays a conspiracy nut who happens to be right a lot, and he's just fucking Mm. awful. He's just, he always plays a terrible human being. But that guy doesn't fucking leave his bunker. You know what I mean? Like, that kind of guy, he's never leaving his bunker. So that doesn't make sense. And then having Winona Ryder's character, like, tail off in an airplane yeah just like leave her kid behind her kid that she fucking suffered for that entire first season she turned carl off of the show with how much she suffered for him (laughs) she just leaves him there while she goes to the soviet union up and i gotta go to alaska i mean dinner's in the fridge david harbour hashtag dad bod (laughs) well Um. at least at least we get the uh backstory to red guardian (laughs) yeah yeah So I will say David Harbour got handed a shit sandwich and he did a good job with that shit sandwich no, that got I, handed. I, I completely like agree. They like, gave him a backstory that they did not fill in. And when he delivers it, you could tell he was just like, finally, I get something meaty to do. He nails it. Like that whole speech about like why his character is the way that he is. So I was grateful for that at least. But of course, that's right as you know with Demi Gorgon's coming. So they finally like kick it up. But it fell into, and Stranger Things had never fallen into this before in my estimation, the old Netflix trap of we have this many hours, so regardless, we have to fill this many hours, so let's like fill things with it, whether they work or not, and over hit things. And that Soviet Union thing was just way overdone. What we should have seen was him there, like had a government guy to go get Hopper for some reason. So A, it makes sense. Like you have Paul Reiser go down there for some reason, you at least buy it because he's a government guy. You know what I mean? 
You have him go down there to get it. You like basically go straight into the Demi Gorgon thing. And then like you resolve it, bring him back or whatever they're doing from that point. But that would have been way better. But instead they're like, fuck, we've got all this time to kill. So they just spend way too much time in that prison. Other storylines, they clip along at a pretty good pace. They're pretty good. They're yeah. pretty good. So And they're interesting. And then you hit like her breaking open a doll to like read a message and brings down the show. Grinds the energy the show has to just a halt. Also, like, tone, the Winona Ryder and the Conspiracy Nut, it's a very different tone than, like, the horror stuff that's happening with the kids. And the sad thing about it is Stranger Things has done such a good job of taking these old tropes and 80s things. Like, they're not like, remember this. They're like, we're taking this trope from the 80s, but we're going to update it. Like, it'll be a thing that the older people are like, I remember that. But then they're, like, modernizing it and doing something different with it, right? Like, I think a good example is, like, the Firestarter thing, right? Which we see a lot in, like, Shades of Carrie with Nine. You know, like, Nine, they did such a good job with her where she's, like, the plot of Firestarter. Like, the government wants her. They know, like, she can do things with her mind and she'll occasionally, like, fuck up an agent or whatever. But then instead of just making it her on the run from the government, they make it this whole thing where, like, she wants to integrate into society and she can't. And, like, she gets this relationship with these kids. and so All the stuff that they did not have in the original Firestarter. I've not seen the reboot, so I can't speak to it. But they do a good job of taking that old thing that was, like, a mainstay in 80s genre. And they're like, nope, we're going to put a today's spin on it. It's a little bit about empowerment, you know? And like, it works. And watching Nine this season, like get bullied and then they're leading it up. Like it's going to be this big carry moment where she blows up the ice skating rink. Uh, Sorry, yeah, 11. They build it up like it's going to be this moment where she blows up the ice skating rink. And instead she beats a girl with a skate. Like it is like an explosion, but it's like, it's, you think her powers are going to come out and she's going to like rip apart people. And it's like, no, it's like a, like a teenage girl who's been pushed way too far. And then she snaps. And I love that subversion. They did a good job of building the tension up to that point and then going a direction that you didn't think of. And then having her willingly go in with the government to get her powers back is like kind of a crazy little twist. And I thought that story worked really well. I like the way that they weaved it with the whole Vecna thing, which like, obviously it's not Vecna. They take D&D characters. The kids will see something from D&D that's like similar and they just name it that, but it's not actually that thing. It's like the Mind Flayer or... Yeah. And like the first one was the Demigorgon, then it's a Mind Flayer. This time it's Vecna. Vecna. Right. But it turns out Vecna is, and I guess big, big spoiler if... You haven't watched Stranger Things yet, but it's another kid who's like nine who is who's close to 11 in power, right? Like he was number one, the fictional yeah. number one who was not fictional. And I really like that. And so now I ask you a question about this. Yeah. Because we, we've said we like these other plots and I don't think we should hang on Stranger Things too long just because we've got two more episodes to kind of wrap it up later. So if they're going to fucking cut off their shit early, I'm going to cut off my shit early. Do you think the upside down is actually created by these psychic kids? Or do you think it's another thing that he just wound up getting banished to? I don't know. It's really hard to tell because I feel like he's in control of the Upside Down, but I don't think he created it. When he was originally going through the programmer, a lot of the psychic powers, it's definitely linked through the Upside Down. So I think it was there 
which gave him his power when he was a kid. But then he just turned evil and like lives in the upside down now and is controlling. Yeah, it's interesting. A good part of that. I don't know because like I have also had that line of thinking, but it, then I also think it, it might not have been a place. She created it as a prison for him, you know? I don't know. And it kind of begs the question, if she created it, how far does it go? Like, is it just around Hawkins? Because that's just what, like, well, the area but if, around I mean, if, she they're, if they're fighting it in the Soviet Union, then it's maybe it's not. Were they fighting it in the Soviet Union? Well, I thought I, that's I, what I, the Demigorgon was, but I, I no, don't no, know. no. They they got the Demigorgon from underneath the mall. Like they and had the whole Hawkins. thing with the mall. Yeah, because the the okay. Soviets were in Hawkins in season three. So so they basically exported the. Yes. Demigorgon out. Yeah. They got what they came for. And then for some reason they took Hopper. I don't understand why they'd be like, let's take the sheriff (laughs) and then just lock him up. None of that makes sense. Ah, let's get off of that. Let's move on. You guys want to talk about the boys, right? Yeah, sure. Season three, three episode premiere. Uh, How many episodes? Eight. Eight sounds right. It was a pretty decent chunk of story. Season two ended with a new status quo. And and they actually did a time jump in the show. Yep. Like a year passes, I think. Yeah. Of the status quo. And then. After Stormfront was. They undo. Burned. All the good stuff that happened gets just annihilated and made 10,000 times worse than it ever was before. <laughs> oh my God. Everyone is in such a horrible spot in the three episodes. People are doing fairly good. The beginning of the season. The bad guys have been put into their place. The government's taken over. They're regulating. Like Huey's got his good job working with this hotshot new senator lady. And they're like, we're taking down the soups on the right side of the law. And meanwhile, Butcher is like still like, doing his shit, but not kind of toned down. Way. But he's kind of like the... He's working for the government. He's on the fringe where like they give him a lot of leash to bring right. down these guys, but... There's, like, definitely a line he's not allowed to cross. They don't want him to just, like, straight up murder people, but, like, do what it takes to bring him in. Yeah. Stormfront isn't actually (laughs) dead, but she's, like, basically, she's off the board at the very least. She's, like, missing three limbs, and her face is, like, half gone. And so she's got, like, one eye and her mouth and one arm, (laughs) and that's it. And she's lying in a bed. Homelander's all miserable, but then like they keep pushing him and they keep pushing him. And all of a sudden you start to realize what is holding him back at this point, you know? And so like one of the things that ends season two is they've got this tape of him from the beginning of his career where like him and Queen Maeve arrive on this plane and they're going to like save everybody on the plane. But they very quickly lose control of the situation and realize they can't save everybody. And it's like we can't save like one person. And then that person tells the world how we fucking let the rest of them die. So. Oh, that was season one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I saw that. And so that occurrence, basically at the end of season two, they tell Homelander, like, we have a videotape that somebody took on the plane. Somebody videotaped like Homelander and Maeve doing that. So and then the plane crashed, but they recovered the tape. So that was like their, hey, we've got this leverage against you, Homelander. And that's what this year of uh, ceasefire has basically been due to. Is that they got this tape? Well, over the course of this first three episodes, Homelander just realizes like, 
Fuck it. Release the tape. You know, it's funny because you said that and I was immediately like, why wouldn't he just murder whoever said that to him right there? Like, it seems to me like Homelander kind of doesn't give a fuck. Well, he's... But he always has this outward persona, like this perfect goody-goody outward persona. But I feel like that goody-goody persona is because they managed him to have the persona. I don't think he particularly cares about it. No, he doesn't care, but... Right, that's what I'm saying. So they they actually did what I thought he he should do. He doesn't care about the world. He never has cared about the world. He cares about being loved by the world. But now he's starting to realize, and he's coming to it kind of slowly... Because he still gets wrapped up in his own insecurities and he still prefers to be loved, but he's starting to realize, like, I guess being feared is an acceptable alternative. So he tells. He starts uh, a podcast where he talks about how he can't joke about anything. Well, he has an outburst. <laughs> he has an outburst on uh, on live television where he it's supposed to be his birthday. And he tells it. He talks about how, like, uh, I'm tired of being persecuted for my strength. Yeah. You know, it's like the perfect. It's the whole anti cancel culture argument. Like, oh, absolutely. Encapsulated. One of the, that's one of the things that this show is doing really, really well is being right on top of the current trends and the conversations around comic books and comic book superhero (laughs) stories and incorporating that into their show and commenting on it. They're almost like the South Park of superhero movies. That's pretty good. Are we going to get into it? Are we going to talk about it? The, the dick meme? scene? So I think you should talk about it. <laughs> there's a scene in the first episode where a superhero called the termite. The termite is an Ant-Man analog. He can shrink. And he's, you know, getting ready to have some, you know, some sexy times with his, with his lover. And so he shrinks down super tiny. He, he, and he does a rail of coke and then like shrinks down to like a rail of coke size because he's like running between the rails of coke. And then he climbs inside his lover's urethra. That's the wrong part. <laughs> That's called, the wrong part. Dude. No, it's called sounding. He's like stroking his lover's dick from the inside. And the That's, guy's like, you should go. And the guy's you like, should go to the hood, right? not no. the urethra. So then he's so then he's like telling him work. Your, uh, uh, get back, make it back to the prostate. Get back, get back to the prostate. He's loving this, dude. And yeah. then, but then the guy gets a little tickle in his nose from the rail. Of coke. Oh no! And he sneezes and goes back, back to, to normal size, size. Tears his lover in half. Ugh! It's pretty graphic. Yeah. And it was directly inspired by the was... the joke meme of Ant Man killing Thanos by flying into his. Well, butt. that and uh, Pierre runs into the room because he's. They're like at the. Well, they're at this party. Yeah, and... it's also relevant to the plot. <laughs> Carl's so just like Pierre covered re- with flop sweat mm. trying to like justify it. What are you talking about? It's relevant to the plot. <laughs> it was a pretty great scene, honestly. Like it was shocking. Well, that like. It is shocking. So it's Termite not even craw- the thing like that shrinks and then like crawls up his leg and is trying to Thanos him. Like, yeah, he does try to kill. He like uh, gets he... to the back door before like she reaches in and like pulls him out. At one point, uh, he's going to jump down the Frenchman's throat and, like, do something horrible to him like that. But then Butcher just, like, swoops in with the Coke bag and, like, gets him in the baggie and just, like, seals the bag and shakes it up a bit. <laughs> like, shake so bake. He's, like, covered in, like, giant Coke particles because he's all tiny. <laughs> and he's all just fucked up. Like, his whole body's a rash from the Coke on his skin and... Yeah, it's, it's pretty <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> the main thrust of the this new season is that there is this famed superhero from the past called Soldier Boy. There was a team called Payback, which was basically Vought 
corporations attempt to incorporate superheroes into the military. And so it's a flashback to like the 70s, 70s uh, or 80s. Venezuela. Because it's like Nicaragua. So it's Venezuela. Yeah. But it's like a flashback. And that's where you bring in Jansen Ackles as the Captain America analog as just this like gross, uh, really misogynistic. Yeah. And uh, according to. So he's like U.S. soldier. According to the history. (laughs) Worse. The Russians killed him with some weapon and he was like tough, like Homelander. So they're like. We got to figure out what this weapon was that supposedly killed Soldier Boy, because if it can kill Soldier Boy, then it can kill Homelander. So they're looking for a weapon that can kill Homelander. Now, I feel like out of the gates that that is not and not even like there are scenes from the trailer that give away that Soldier Boy is not actually dead. But I mean, like, even if you hadn't seen that in the trailer, it becomes obvious pretty fast that there is no magic weapon. Whatever this magic weapon there they're looking for does not exist. And Soldier Boy's not dead. But that's yet to come. While they're doing that, they're trying to keep Homelander distracted. Meanwhile, Starlight's been made the co-captain of the Seven, which has been a, is a huge blow to uh, Homelander. The, the ego of Homelander. He gets revenge on Starlight for doing that, beca- uh, allowing herself to become co-captain by getting the Deep brought back onto the Seven. But then he's also torturing the Deep. The Deep has this friend that's an octopus. Little a little tiny octopus guy named Jonathan that's like his buddy. And when he has sex with his wife, he like talks dirty to Jonathan. <laughs> but then during the welcome back banquet, not only is the entire spread for this dinner seafood, right? Which is just like bothers the deep anyways. But also the seafood final food he personally knew. <laughs> the final dish is Jonathan and he forces yeah, the deep. He forces the deep to eat Jonathan alive. Yeah. And like, as the deep is like picking up the octopus to eat it, he's like, he's begging me for his life. He's telling me about his kids and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then he eats him. But okay. Funny side uh, deal about that. If you know anything about octopuses, which I personally don't know anything about octopuses, but some asshole on Reddit knows a bunch about octopuses. And they were talking about how male octopuses die like immediately after they pollinate or whatever you call it so jonathan was fucking lying about his children that octopus is a pervert and a liar <laughs> or the writers and he don't deserves know what they're doing <laughs> well i think they knew jonathan was a liar i think they did it's pretty it adds levels to the joke it like it feels intentional though i will tell you something this is honest to god this is not to be funny or anything like that in 2020, I watched my octopus teacher with much of the, the nation. Uh-huh. I've never cried so fucking hard than when that octopus Ugh. died, dude. It, it's so good and so beautiful, but like when it dies, it's just the saddest fucking thing. You know, ever. and that's especially because it fucking hugs it. That's, right no, oh, God damn no, it. <laughs> don't you dare that. No, I'm taking it to something sentimental. Fucking voice. Fuck that shit. <laughs> no, that guy is a fucking piece of shit. The guy that made that movie is a piece of shit. I don't know like, anything about it. He literally abandoned his family to go live with this fucking octopus. No. And it's an octopus. No, his wife and son were there. Like, no, they The were waves neglected. literally went into the house like on stormy days. Like They show his son constantly. Like His son's diving with him and stuff. No. It's part of that story. I know story. the truth behind that it's movie. I know the truth behind that I will that not movie. let you solely his name. No. He's that was a, a beautiful documentary. No. <laughs> 
And there's no way that they had that that relationship was really existed the way. Dude, that it's it was on portrayed. camera. It fucking no, hugged him. The, it fucking oh hugged him, Carl. And those horses are really doing math too. They weren't. Just I don't like know what you're talking about. To there was the, no horses in there. I'm talking like in you the, think that you think he <laughs> trained an octopus to like. No, I'm saying that we are constantly like it's like that very open that first episode of Community where he's like Shark Week is how I can take this pencil, tell you its name is Jonathan, and then he snaps it in half, and a little part piece of you dies inside when he snaps Jonathan in half because we're we're projecting <laughs> anthropomorphizing. Quali- yes, hold on, I'm all about that too. The difference is that octopi are not like any other animals in there. And Brandon, you have to know this. You're a smart guy. Its DNA is not shared. It has no ancestors that we know of on Earth. Like That's it's completely, a conspiracy theory. It's completely foreign to all the other wild. Like, okay, as Alex is telling us this, he's putting on a tinfoil hat. I am not. I was already wearing it. It's lining the thing because I need to make sure that the light doesn't fucking make my head go rashy. Anyway, moving on. Better call Saul. Yeah. Yeah, totally. We should talk about George Carlin. This is probably a good time, right? Sure. Yeah. We watched uh, The American Dream two-part documentary on HBO. It's Jed Apatow, so it's long as fuck. But I think his bad tendencies in regular movies to make them too long actually works for documentaries. Yeah. I don't think there's fat in his documentaries. No. I think he's actually probably editing it down from a three-parter and manages to get to a two-part. Like, I think it managed to hit things about George Carlin that I did not know. It managed to reinforce things that I did know. It managed to do enough stand-up where it was like I remembered the lines and I would go through it and it gives you a feel for who he is, but it doesn't overstay its welcome with it. And I felt like it was very successful at progressing his career as it went along. It was pretty fascinating. I, I thought it was crazy when like early on in the, the story, when is his like early, early career? They're like, and then he did this. And I was like, that's not the George Carlin that I really remember. And then like, they're like, and then he completely reinvented himself into this guy that you now remember. And you're like, oh, shit. And it was like, it's really like three phases. It's not a reinvention so much as life, like a self-actualization kind of thing where he's like taking off the monkey suit and becoming himself. Actually, you know what it is? It's four phases to his career. I think the first phase is when he's like breaking out and he's like doing the radio and he's just starting stand up and he winds up getting into Vegas clubs and he's performing for all the guys in the suits that he doesn't really agree with. And I had known about that George Carlin. I had never seen a George Carlin bit or heard one from that period until I watched this documentary. Yeah. yeah. Like, and I know my dad knew. I him. didn't know like, anything about that version. I didn't know that that version of George Carlin existed. So I had no idea. I have most of his albums, not all of them, but I would say like probably like 90% of them. I have Class Clown, AMFM. I think AMFM is the first one and then Class Clown and then uh, Occupation Fool. Like it's three of his best-selling albums. They were all back to back to back. And that is during that reinvention period. Like AMFM is the first album he puts out once he goes into the phase of like, I'm going to be a counterculture guy now. And then like Class Clown is like the one that like launches him to another stratosphere, I think. 
it had liner notes in there and it talked about his early career, which is how I knew about it. And then my dad told me some stuff that he would see him do, but I'd never actually seen it or heard it. And it was like, you watch it and it's like, yeah, there's something there. I don't really connect to the comedy because it's definitely like not the type of comedy we go with today. Like it's, it's definitely like, 60s comedy you know like yeah very early 60s straight laced comedy yeah it's the standard of what comedy was for that time right it doesn't really connect to me but i'm really glad i saw it because i didn't know what that sounded like or looked like until i saw it and even just seeing him with like short hair and stuff young like that was fucking weird in a suit like yeah my first image when I think of George Carlin is old George Carlin wearing black, balding head, super grouchy. But then my next image of him is like the cover of Class Clown, which is like super long hair in his what, mid 30s, early 40s, somewhere, somewhere around there. there. Yeah. It was strange seeing that. But it was kind of incredible to watch him make that turn into the counterculture. And in my mind, that was the turn I was waiting for in the documentary. But then at a certain point, you realize like, oh, right, this gets really big. But then I didn't really think about how in the 80s, his career kind of tails off. He's got to get angrier. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it turns into is just angry. And they show him on that boomer bit and he just eviscerates his own generation. You know, he kind of fucking nails it. If I'm being honest, like not, not all boomers. I I know like I generalize it, but him talking about the slogans that they had, like just do it, you know, like life's hard, play hard and all that shit. He's like all of their slogans. They just tell you how everybody went from cocaine to Rogaine and be an individual to be sold out, you know, and uh, just watching that anger start to rise. But he had such good control over it. And then he just fucking loses it. Yeah. And it just gets too dark at the end. I actually didn't finish the second part. Um, I mean, you kind of lived it. So that second part is really, that's the George Carlin. I really remember most is like, I think I watched it and then I think I taped it or some did something so I could burn it onto a CD. Like, so I could listen to it. Uh, you were all diseased. Um, yeah, not a good one. No, it's it's really dark. I think that's the one where he's I, talking about like, don't you ever hear an ambulance and look out the window really excited and hope you're going to see a bunch of bodies or like you see a fire and you hope it spreads. <laughs> like that's when he's like super dark in that one. Yeah. Like I could definitely tell he got way more cynical as he went through his career. But I don't know, when I watched his special on HBO, it never got to where it was so dark, but it never was felt wrong. It did to me. I'll be honest. Yeah. In particular, that last special, his last HBO special, I hated it. I utterly, like, I, I didn't hate George Carlin, but I hated that special. It was just so fucking negative. And I'm a guy who's got albums from going back to AMFM, like, forward. So I've watched the progression. And he was like this idealist, right? Like you look in the 70s and he's got this idea of like how much better things can be, but he's pointing out how bad it is. But like, we can get there, you know, like he would almost say it like that. And he would say certain things that had like, he'd point out something fucked up, but he's able to like put a fun spin on it where it wasn't totally negative. Like uh, talking about Muhammad Ali, for example, like you wanted to beat up people. And the government said, we want you to kill people, change your job. And he said, nah, I'll beat them up, but I don't want to kill them. And the government said, well, if you don't kill them, we won't let you beat them up. It's really spiteful. And like, he's saying it and there's like, like kind of, he's like bemused by it a little bit. You know what I mean? 
Like, it's like there is this little bit of hopefulness. Like, if I point this out and point out the hypocrisy, maybe people will see it. You cut to the 80s. It's almost like he's, like, freeform, dancing around stuff, like like a place for my shit. You know what I mean? Like, they talk about that in the documentary. Yeah. Like, that is a classic 80s Carlin bit. He's trying to find something to connect with the audience with. And at that point, the only thing he can really do, he knows that the wordplay works, you know? But then you, like, cut to, like, the early 90s, and then he's just fucking angry. But he's fucking killing it as he's angry. But there's this little thing in him where he's like, you can tell he's just disappointed that this is where we got. You know what I mean? Like, I've been fighting this fight for years, and I've been watching it get worse and worse. But by that last album, dude, it just doesn't seem to like humanity. And that's why I hate that album. Like, I listen to it, and it sounds like an old grouchy fuck. He just sounds mad at the world. And it's weird because you find out that, like, he had a wife at that time, like a second wife, and he's super happy and writing him, like, lovey shit. And they're really getting along well. And he's having this, like, very happy existence at home. And then he's going out on stage and just spilling bile on stage, you know? <laughs> like, it's it's kind of a weird juxtaposition. What was your big takeaway from it, Carl? Well, I had always heard that his wife dying was the big catalyst to his turn to darkness. So I was quite surprised to learn about his second wife. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know and, about her either. Uh, also, I had always heard about how much he loved his first wife. And then uh, to learn that like their marriage was incredibly rocky, like with very high highs, but also some incredibly low lows and shocking that like by all rights, they probably shouldn't have stayed married. For, for either, both of them would have had total reasons to walk away. Yeah. Like, good reasons. But they didn't, and they got what they got out of it. It was interesting. Feel bad for his daughter, dude. It sounds like yeah. they put her through a lot. She had a... Well, and, you know, they were also, like, uh, trying not to repeat their parents' mistakes and then making all new ones. And then still falling back into the old patterns of their parents, too. Like, you know, it's real hard to be a parent. You fail in a lot of ways. Yep. <laughs> It's just constantly finding out a new way to fail. Yeah. <laughs> so also the parallels to what comedians are saying nowadays, what some comedians are saying nowadays with like, oh, we can't tell the same jokes anymore. Boo hoo. We're not allowed to be funny. And it's like, like dude, Homelander's this motherfucker, podcast. this motherfucker reinvented himself four goddamn times because he had to, to stay relevant. And it's like, what are you fucking complaining about, Ricky Gervais? You can't tell that you and Dave Chappelle can't make this the fucking same one transphobic joke that they ought tell over and over again. You know, you oh, you don't get to tell that joke anymore. Like, boo friggin' who? Come up with something new. Kids in the Hall came back, fucking crushed it. Crushed it. Did wrote some sketches that are like some of the best sketch work they've ever done, you know? And so quit saying stuff can't get made anymore and quit saying like that it's anybody's fault other than your own when people don't think you're fucking funny. That's what we can learn from George Carlin. Yeah. Like when you're out on stage, it's a fucking ocean and it's rocky at times and it's smooth sailing at other times. And George Carlin weathered it all, dude. He weathered it all and he got to be a grumpy fuck at the end, but at least he's a grumpy fuck with an HBO special. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm glad that he got to do what he did and that his legacy lives on. I'm glad I grew up with it. Some of the stuff I was listening to when I was watching the documentary, 
aged like milk. <laughs> Give me an example. A lot of stuff had, I mean, I had some uh, new ingredients, had a couple of beers, and, and I was watching it. I was following it, but I wasn't like really like dissecting anything. All I saw was like ultra angry white guy. Look at it from that perspective. It's, it is very, very white. I will say if you take the last, like the very end of his career off the table and you look at that other angry period, like the nineties, the early two thousands, right? I think that anger is completely targeted at people who kind of deserve it. No, it's it's a lot of anger at, at the people who are pushing war. It's a lot oh, of anger definitely. at like, the capitalists. Church, the no, church. and I, yeah, I, the church. I would definitely like, and I, I mean, he was making some very good points, but uh, like, if you just step back from what he's actually saying and just watch him on TV, oh sure, he is definitely just angry white guy, and well, it, yeah, it's way in it. That's really pulling the context out. If you're like, well, if you take out the voice, which is the whole art of the no, thing, no, no, he looks I, like an asshole. <laughs> but we're also looking at it as white men who have been listening to him our entire lives. But if you just step back and look at it from a different perspective, it It sounds entitled is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, you might have a point. I will say one thing you have that's stepping really, really far back and having like a pretty myopic view of history. (laughs) I will say one thing that has not aged well, which was not in the documentary, but in class clown, he talks about various voices that he heard in his neighborhood in New York. And he goes in a black voice for a while. Yeah, (laughs) man. It's, it doesn't age well, but that's I'm not going to apologize for it. That's the phages badly. Yeah. They also didn't put that in the documentary either. So I didn't have to contend with it while I was (laughs) watching. So I'm not saying that element to George Carlin's not there, (laughs) but I would say like not apologizing for it. First off, just explaining that when I hear comedy from the seventies, do not expect politically correct comedy, no matter who's putting it out. You listen to fucking Chicha Chong. There's some racist ass shit in that too. You know? Oh yeah. Uh, it was really interesting though, because like when he was first doing the the variety shows, and they like have him and Richard Pryor going off. Like they, they fucking they loved each other, dude. I didn't realize like I don't know if I've ever like put those two together, and then like seeing them on going like on that variety show going back and forth. I'm like, that's pretty great. So not only have I seen them together before, but like that is with like really big stand up fans. That's often the argument is who is better, Carlin or Pryor. And I feel like when you boil it down, it's usually like Pryor is the one who started modern stand-up in that like it was so driven by his personality, it was inescapable. Like everything he did was coming from personal experience. And he was the first guy to really do that, at least in a successful way, certainly like a commercial way. But then like George Carlin, it's about all the time he puts into it, the reinvention, like him being near the top for so long. It's like he has the body of work. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of the Jordan versus LeBron argument in a way. Do you like the guy who was like fucking super dominant for like eight years where it was unquestionable that he was the best basketball player in the world? Or do you like the guy who had a 20 year career where he's just like near the top or on the top for 20 straight years? You know, Jordan hits higher highs in that eight years, but then also LeBron like has a career that's like successful from the get go till he tries something new. He tries something new and then does well at it like 
Goes yeah. goes to Cleveland, wins a championship. Goes. He's won championships in three different teams. Like Jordan never came close to doing anything like that. And I'm not gonna devolve this into yeah. basketball talk just because the NBA finals is going, but like it is equated to that. And so seeing Pryor and Carlin in there. I was waiting for prior to show up. I'll be honest, man. Like I've seen them together once or twice on like YouTube clips, but it felt like a thing that needed, they had to acknowledge prior somehow. And it's the same as like, if you watch a lot of prior docs, they'll work in Carlin somewhere. They always do, man. Those two are like linked, whether you like it or not. (laughs) But having them like literally on stage, like going back and forth was, it was pretty wonderful. Yeah. It's pretty special. And it seemed like prior was relatively sober. As was Carlin, I guess. Yeah. He's probably high. They said he was high every time he ever went out on stage. So There's a lot of actors that are known for their characters dying on screen. Most notably, like Sean Bean is known for a lot of his characters dying on film. Dies three times in Goldeneye. Impressive, dude. <laughs> I think that's where he got the rep from, honestly. I actually have a list of people in the death rate of their characters dying on screen. I wonder if Samuel Jackson's high on this list. Yeah, we'll go through it. So a couple of honorable mentions here. So Brad Pitt's characters die 10.7%, nine on-screen deaths, 84 total credits. Sean Bean has 120 total credits, has died 24 times on screen for a death rate of 20%. Three of those were Goldeneye. <laughs> Um, they're probably for their list. They're probably only counting the last of those. They're three. probably yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> the first two are fake outs. <laughs> also, while these guys they're calling these guys honorable mentions on this list, yeah, they also well, have some incredibly memorable deaths. Is the thing Brad Pitt may not have a lot of them, but like his death in Meet Joe Black is memorable. His death in Thelma and Louise. Yeah, it. His death in they beat uh, the shit out of his that death in uh, Burn After Reading. You just shoot him in the forehead. His yeah. death in Fight Club is pretty memorable too. He like breathes out the smoke from the gun. That was all. He didn't actually die. That's a fake out. I bet you anything mm. they counted it as a on screen death. It's possible. Yeah, they because they didn't. They misread that film. <laughs> <laughs> I wish people could see the way that Carl like squinted his eyes and looked so annoyed as he said that. <laughs> so Sean Bean's death rate is 20%. Another honorable mention is Harrison Ford is 7.14%. Yeah, on, that's real low. On screen deaths, six total credits, 84. Tom Cruise is 10%. Yeah, that tracks. All right. So now getting into the actual top 10. So number 10 is Eric Roberts. Okay. I can think of two movies with Eric Roberts and he dies in both of them, I think. I believe The Dark Knight because he is John Turturro's character in The Batman. Falcone? Yeah, Falcone. Which I think they say Falcone in one and Falcone in the other, but regardless. And then the other thing I can think of is Runaway Train, right? And I think everybody fucking dies in that one. (laughs) Uh, he has died 35 times on screen. He has 669 credits to his name. That's fucking nuts, man. So his death rate is 5.23%. Number nine is Tom Sizemore. Yeah, that makes sense because of the movies that Tom Sizemore does. <laughs> he he's just, always like, he's a henchman. He's like a six build character. You yeah, know what I mean? Like, yeah. not quite good enough for the poster, but you're like, oh, it's Tom Sizemore. Like, 
And he's never on the right side. He's never on the side that lives. And when he, yeah. And when he is on the right side, like the correct side, he he's still like dies. the guy who dies. And like somebody looks at him and like looks up at the camera and screams or whatever. <laughs> like yeah, that's like, Tom Sizemore. He was the inside in uh, Saving Private Ryan. He was the guy with the Sarge with the, the bazooka. And like, you know, that guy's a fucking target walking yeah. around with a bazooka. Bella Lugosi is number eight. That makes sense. <laughs> I was running through this for the Bride of Frankenstein episode of A Cosmic Void, and they had so many Dracula movies that like intersected with Frankenstein, and Dracula dies at the end of every <laughs> single one. Like just for dying as Dracula, he's probably got eight deaths there. Yeah. So he has 36 on screen deaths out of 115 roles for 31.3%. Wow. So like almost a third of his movies, he dies on screen. Number seven, we have John Hurt. John Hurt. I'm trying to think of movies where he dies. I guess. Aliens. Um, sure. No, Hellboy. Alien. Alien. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. Hellboy. That's right. He's the kindly professor or whatever he so is. Do you think he died more as a young man or as an old man? He's probably been that old mentor that dies a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I don't think he dies in Indiana Jones, does he? Maybe he does. What was he in Indiana Jones? He was oh. the adult. It yeah. was in the one that nobody likes. Crystal Skull. S- Crystal Skull. Oh, yeah. He was the the crazy old I'm guy. pretty sure he yeah. survived. Yeah, he survives that. that one. Uh, so he died 39 times on screen out of 20, 211 times for a death rate of 18.5%. And that's why he passed away a couple of years ago, because he's so committed to his craft. <laughs> he's a method actor. Yeah. <laughs> Number six, we have Boris Karloff. Again, the Universal Monsters. Makes sense. Frankenstein dies a lot in those movies. So he's died 41 times out of 205 for a death rate of 20%. Jesus. Number five, we have Dennis Hopper. That makes sense. Yeah. I feel like I've only seen him die in one movie, but I can't say I've Water seen Waterworld, Easy Rider. Oh, yeah. I forgot about Waterworld. Uh, I've never Blue. actually watched all of Easy Rider. Does he so. not get killed in Blue Velvet? I imagine that. Speed. I remember him dying of he's, speed. Yeah, that was he's what like I remember. a main villain. It's yeah. like, when does he not deserve to play a character that deserves to die? Well, Super Mario. He brother. did the villain turn in like the nineties, didn't he? He was just like zoned out guy before that, and then for some reason, I think it was Speed. Like he was in Speed, and then they were just like, "Oh, this guy does a good fucking villain." Yeah, yeah. this guy plays sinister like a motherfucker. I might have been Blue Velvet, honestly. He is fucking terrifying. That's in that right. Movie. I forgot he's a villain in that. Heineken. Too. It's probably Blue Fuck Velvet. Fuck Heineken. Then. <laughs> And also, the movie that launched a million fucking anarchists drinking PBR as their beer of choice. Yeah, now they drink PBR and they don't even know it's because of that movie. They don't even know that that movie is what did it. Because he's saying, like, he's literally spelling out Heineken is the beer of the bourgeois and PBR is the beer of, like, the proletariat. So Des Hopper (laughs) has died 41 out of 208 rolls for a death rate of 19.71 vincent price comes in at number four that, that makes one sense. makes total sense dracula so he actually did he is, play dracula uh, probably <laughs> i mean he had a, a lot of the edgar Allan poe movies i don't think he was in a frankenstein movie <laughs> wolfman i don't think he was in any of the universal monsters Re-animator. he was like the pit and the pendulum i I'm think am i thinking of christopher lee yeah i think you are okay so he was in the thriller video carl <laughs> you're the thriller video <laughs> Was he in Gremlins 2? That's Christopher Lee. Yeah, it is Christopher Lee. 
Yeah. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so Vince Price has also died 41 times out, out of 211%. Number three is Lance Henriksen. Okay. So he was Bishop in yeah yeah in the Alien franchise. He was in the X Files spinoff Millennium. Do we count two deaths for him from Aliens to Alien Three because like he's a head in Alien Three, but then they disconnect the head at a part? Well, was he if he was a robot? Was he ever alive? Yeah, I don't know. I want to know how they're compiling these stats. That I have no idea because <laughs> that's all I know him from. Well, he and has also died fifty-one times. On the screen. percentage, the percentage of saying like the number of times you've died in roles compared to the number of movies you've done is like when there's somebody that's done four hundred movies. You know? Yeah. Like, and then it's like five percent. It seems unimpressive. Like the percentage doesn't make doesn't. Who cares? So it, she keeps changing because it's like death rate. It's, it's not an increasing number. It's not an increasing number. Right. This saying. is about this on is, screen deaths, right? Yeah. The amount of on screen yeah. total is yeah. the ranking. Is what matters. Yeah. I bet Danny Trejo total is high deaths. on the list, even if he didn't so make it onto this. Bishop was number three. Number two is Christopher Lee. Yeah. yeah. There he is. Uh, has died <laughs> 60 times on screen. Mummy. Yes. yes. Everything you said before. Not mummy. Moon, what man, the hell, moon dude? monster. <laughs> Loch Ness. Count Dooku. Uh, sure. Saruman. Yeah, Saruman. God damn. And he also like big deaths. That's where it gets into it. How come Alan Rickman's not on this higher on this list? You know, probably because he had one very spectacular death. Like Die Hard is the one that everybody Snape. knows from it. Yeah, I mean, there's a few of them. What's but... a Snape? I don't know. Severus. What's a Severus? He's a professor. What's a professor? Uh, <laughs> professor X. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, that X-Men. guy. So if he goes around in a floating wheelchair. <laughs> He's the Brotherhood. He's actually on the other side. He's evil. Anyways, who's number one? Are we at number one? We're at number one. Is it Trejo? It is Danny Trejo. Yes. Wow. He has died 65 times on screen. <laughs> That's out of, learned... out of 421 credits at a death rate of 15.44%. Wow. What's your favorite Trejo death? Mine is in Breaking Bad. That's he shows weird. up like his severed head is on a turtle. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. Or uh, a tortoise, sorry. I like I like I think the the first time I ever saw him in a movie is still the most striking he is in a movie to me, which is Desperado. Yeah, that's where I was going because that's that's that the was one, like... the first time I ever saw Danny Trejo, and he was a fucking behemoth in that just fucking big motherfucker, and just like the whole chest everybody's tattoo, shooting like, all the way down, everybody's like... shooting at each other, and he's just like throwing, throwing knives, <laughs> and you're like, this guy's like seven feet tall, throwing big ass knives around while everyone else is shooting guns. It's like, what the fuck, <laughs> dude? And he, he held belong. his own with all of these people. Yeah. All right. Take it easy. Please rate and review our show. Sign up for an Anchor account. You can leave voice messages through a link in the description of the podcast, or you can answer our poll questions. Reach out to us through Instagram at redwood underscore sound underscore labs or Facebook at facebook.com slash redwood sound labs. Email us at notsafernetwork at gmail.com. Not Safer Network was created and hosted by Carl Borneman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Aaron Donaldson and Alex Small. Zach and Matt discuss some of the best and worst horror movies out there. Check out all four seasons of Watch No Evil. 
Lauren and Sarah riff on changing topics each week. Whether it's celebrity horoscopes, the poop cruise, or smell-o-vision, you'll laugh along with Dippers. Catch up on pop culture news and reviews every week with Brandon Biggs and Carl on Not Safe for Network. Professor Aaron Donaldson and Purple Heart recipient Charles Horgan break down war movies, their narratives, and the rhetoric behind them on Real War Project. 